I'm hard-pressed to think of a diagnosis more controversial than pediatric ADHD. Everybody has an opinion on Ritalin. Our guest today reminds us that this ongoing dialogue doesn't really reflect the scientific validity of ADHD and its treatment, but rather gives us a window into what happens when science is translated into public policy, rules, and even the law. Welcome to our special segment on healthcare policy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Mays. Dr. Mays is an associate professor of public policy at the University of Richmond's Department of Political Science and a faculty research fellow at the Petrus Center on Healthcare Markets and Consumer Welfare at the University of California at Berkeley. His newest book is called Medicating Children, ADHD and Pediatric Health. Welcome to ReachMD, Rick. Thank you. Happy to be here. How did you become interested in this topic? Great question. I remember how I became interested very clearly, even though it was like 10 years ago that it all began. I was teaching my first ever college class in the summer of 1998. I was just a lowly graduate student, and this was my first stint as an instructor. And at the end of, I think it was either the second or the third day of class, two students approached me at the end of my lesson after all the other students had left. And these two students had already been noticeably active in class in a great way, and they were already valuable contributors to our discussions. They were really sharp students. When they approached me, they looked a little uncomfortable, and they, had, and they quickly handed me two separate letters from my dean, the dean of the college, which stated that they had a diagnosis of ADHD, and therefore they were entitled to a variety of academic accommodations, like a separate room for them to take the midterm and final exam in, extra time in both of those tests, etc. The exact details of the accommodations, the letter said, could be hammered out between me and the students, as long as we were both satisfied. So they were relatively flexible in terms of how these accommodations were made. But I confess that in 1998, I had literally had never heard of ADHD. This was my first time also ever being in charge of a class as a teacher, and I remember trying not to look as confused as I felt. And I had actually been an intern in the George Bush Senior White House, and the only reason I mentioned that was that it was his administration that pushed for and ultimately achieved passage of a landmark disability policy in 1990. So I mean, I kind of should have been a little clued in, but I was completely clueless. Moreover, when I thought of disability, my first image back then was always something physical, wheelchair access, ramps, braille and ATMs, etc. In addition, I was looking at two of what initially seemed to be my better, maybe not even my best students in my class, and they were asking for special arrangements that would probably require me to write separate tests and make other separate arrangements which would actually impinge on whatever I wanted to do. One more thing, I worried, what would the other students say when they found out? Would they feel like they were being disadvantaged against? Was I playing favorites? And lastly, all graduate students, like all teachers, are taught and it's drilled into them to, in general, trust most of your students, but to always cultivate a certain healthy sense of skepticism about students' special requests. We're always told to announce, in fact, on the first day of class that there will be no special arrangements or accommodations except in extraordinary and pre-approved circumstances. So all that's just to say that my first initiation into how a medical diagnosis could have massive, and for me, very personal and significant legal and policy issues, I was totally unprepared. It made me think, wow, this is one of those rare instances, maybe not as rare as I understand now, but back then I thought, how often does this kind of thing happen, that that the medical world completely eclipses, overlaps, and and interconnects with policy and educational and legal worlds in a way that affects me? And that began to make me think, well, why is that happening? And, And to what extent is this appropriate? And what's the history of these areas that otherwise people tend to think is separate. There's a medical world and there's diagnosis, there's an educational world and those don't overlap. Well now, as we all know, more and more, they have huge amounts of overlap 
that have really serious consequences. But back then, I thought, I should look into this more. My initial desire to write any of this was just so that I could be less clueless. Now, you briefly mentioned your time in the George Bush Sr. White House, but in your book, you talk about the three seemingly minor policy changes in the 90s, which changed this whole landscape. What were they? It's fascinating because it's one of those massive cases of unintended consequences. Back in the early 1990s, three really small policy changes happened that had nothing intrinsically or explicitly to do with ADHD at all, but in the end had a huge effect on the diagnosis and the use of the drugs. In 1990, the Supreme Court modified the Supplemental Security Income Program to include, for the first time, children diagnosed with ADHD. So for children and adults who received monthly checks from the government to supplement their income, meaning they had a disability and their family was relatively poor enough to qualify, after 1990, for the first time, if your child had ADHD, they could receive supplemental security income. One year later, in 1991, Congress adjusted the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to explicitly include ADHD as a protected disability. This ties into the discussion we just had about special test accommodations, study buddies, separate rooms, extra time on tests. After 1991, if you had ADHD, you were for the first time entitled to all these special educational accommodations. And finally, the last one actually is only now coming to light. In the early 1990s, Congress expanded dramatically the number of children who qualified for Medicaid. In other words, they, they increased the income threshold, meaning a lot more people who were poor, but they weren't as poor as they had to be previously to qualify, now qualified for Medicaid. So whereas before these expansions, there were about 19 to 20% of all U.S. children who could qualify for Medicaid, by the early 1990s, more than 30% of American children could qualify for Medicaid. And that had an enormous effect on the amount of psychotropics in general and specifically stimulants that were used in this country. The numbers are amazing. Between 1991 and 2001, Medicaid spending on psychotropic drugs, all of them, went from less than a half a billion dollars to $7 billion by 2001, and specifically on stimulants for children. Over that same 10-year period, real inflation-adjusted spending on stimulants increased ninefold, and the number of stimulant prescriptions increased sixfold. So in short, you had these three minor policy changes that were not specifically intended to have a huge effect on ADHD, that when they all came together, just were a massive spark for unprecedented increase in ADHD diagnoses and stimulant use. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Mays. We are discussing ADHD and public policy. Rick, why has the use of other medicines like antidepressants and antipsychotics lagged behind the stimulants in the pediatric population? Good question. There are two basic reasons that explain this, this difference. The first one is that the newer atypical second-generation antipsychotics did not really become available until the early to mid-1990s, and they were not studied very much for use by children until after 1997 when major drug legislation was passed that provided a financial incentive for drug companies to do more research on pediatric psychopharmacology. And second, depression and bipolar disorder have traditionally been seen as adult disorders, not for kids, and, they, and the, the prevailing wisdom until the last 10 years is that these were very, very, very rare to almost not existent in children. In the last 10 years, that has changed significantly, and now it's becoming more and more seen as something that children can have. Conversely, interesting just to give you a comparison, if you look at where the big increase in ADHD diagnoses and stimulant prescriptions has been over the last 10 years, it's not been in children and adolescents. 
it's been in adults. That's where the real growth market for both of those has been. Why might that be? Well, for the exact opposite reason, ADHD has traditionally been seen as a child and adolescent disorder, and only in the last 10 years has ADHD been seen as something that adults can have. So it's, they provide good mirror images of one another. Do you see the pendulum swinging back at all? That's a great question that I, I hoped I would have an answer for when I started writing this book. It's a genuine frustration that I have that at the end of this book, I, I understand more the complexities and the frustrations and the dilemmas. But I do think there's a, and I think your audience might be aware of this as well, there is a growing backlash against the increase in bipolar diagnoses among children and adolescents. And there is empirical evidence that the black box warnings on SSRI antidepressants have led to many physicians curtailing their use of these drugs among their pediatric patients. But I don't see anything quite like that with ADHD and stimulants. I would share with your audience on a personal level the two ways in which I personally as a professor and someone who works in this field see ADHD and stimulants. And it's the one, these two realities more or less fight for my primary attention. I teach a class on mental health care and policy at my university, which kind of makes me the de facto mental health guy at our institution. I get lots of calls and emails and requests to talk with a struggling student or his or her parents, or I get asked to participate in a forum discussion on college mental health issues. And on top of that, my wife and I have, for the last six years, lived as dorm parents with 120 other guys in a college dorm. So we've gotten, both in the classroom and on a personal level, I've really gotten to know a lot of students really well. And what is continually impressed upon me is how many students I meet who, after they know who I am and the area I work in and that mental health is something I'm interested in, will, after a while, pull me aside and say, just as FYI, the reality there for them is that they are at this college, and our college is relatively competitive. They're at college primarily because of, of stimulants. It's not because they can't do the work and the stimulants provides them everything to get the work done, but that, in all honesty, that it, it is the critical factor in, in their lives that allows them to actually get into college and to stay in the college and actually thrive. And you hear enough of those, you, you think, and then I, a lot of them say very candidly, I don't know if I have full-blown clinical threshold quality ADHD. I don't know if I do have that. I don't know if I'll ever know that. I do know that I'm one person without the medication, and I really, really struggle, and I'm another person with the medication. And even I, to this point now, as a professor and a teacher and someone who lives among them, I can tell when they come into my room, like, oops, I don't think they're on medication today. And that, that's apart from whether I actually do think in my heart of hearts they have ADHD or not. Because in the end, this is the great diagnostic struggle with mental disorders is that there's no blood, urine, or radiological exam that can definitively tell you. And I don't know when we're going to have that. At the same time, I've done formal and informal surveys and focus groups among my students that were intended to try to get some measure of the black market that exists for stimulants among college students. And the findings that have come from these surveys is the other reality, the very sobering reality, is in that after we had that massive surge in the number of ADHD diagnoses and the prescriptions that went went with them in the 1990s, that's a whole cohort of kids who are now coming to college and they're bringing their prescriptions with them. So every 10th room on on the floor has a child, or is now not a child, is now an adult, who has a legitimate prescription for stimulants, and they have stimulants. And those stimulants go for sale from between $1 to $5, depending on the dosage level, depending on the time of the semester, and depending on the law of supply and demand. And that reality exists as well. And depending on how you ask the question in your surveys and focus groups about do you use drugs, do you use these stimulants illicitly, depending on how you ask it, you get between 10% and 30% of college students at schools like mine 
use, they acknowledge using stimulants illicitly. And that, you know, that raises a whole variety of really, I mean, it's, it's not, this isn't like rub your chin kind of deep questions. This is the kind of question that the other, like the roommate is saying, wait a minute, I'm not using these drugs illicitly, but my roommate is, and he or she could be getting an edge on me. I mean, at what point am I at a competitive disadvantage if I don't use? I will, one more interesting thing, though, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. I think you're, the audience might find this interesting. Just hearing those results, between 10 and 30% of college students used stimulants illicitly, my first impression will be, oh, it's, I, I think I know who those kids are. They're those A, A plus, A minus students, hyper-competitive, always looking for another edge. Really interesting in our surveys. That's not what we found. By far, the much more common form of the way the drugs are used, they're used by students whose GPA is more in the B to C range. And what has happened in 90% or more of the cases that they use it is that they have procrastinated to a point that they literally have to write three papers in two nights. And physiologically, that would be almost impossible unless you use some kind of aid. And so what they end up doing is they literally will, in a sense, work binge on stimulants for two nights to literally just get a passable paper or a passable research project submitted on time, and then they crash. And so it's really interesting that the illicit use of these is not for the hyper-competitive to get one more last... This isn't like sports. You know, this isn't like Barry Bonds, who's already fantastic, using a little bit more of illegal substance to get one last edge. In this case, it's students who are yeah, middling students, struggling students, and I will say on our surveys... Uh, more male than female, have found themselves in a procrastinated quandary and they literally can't get out. And so they panic and they take stimulants. And so both of those realities exist in the world that I live in. And they constantly kind of, you know, I have to realize that they both exist. And I think that's the, maybe one of the most important things I would leave your audience with is that the question always comes up, well, is it diagnosed too much? Are the drugs overused? Because people don't like, it's human nature to have resolution. You don't want to have things that are you know, simultaneously occurring that don't seem to fit. But the reality, and it maybe shouldn't surprise us as a country, we do everything to extreme, is that there are a lot of kids out there who, who are really struggling and they do have ADHD. And for a variety of reasons, usually they're poor or they're, they're not in a community that has enough clinicians or clinicians who are properly trained or this, whatever variety of factors, they go underdiagnosed and they don't get treated. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today. Thank you for having me. We've been talking about the very complicated world of ADHD and public policy with our guest, Dr. Rick Mays. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, give us a ring at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening.